Welcome to the 14th episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Gabriela Dixon-Larrota, and I am Associate Content Manager at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. In this episode, Senior Content Editor Agosa Asemora sits down with C. Dixon Osborne, the Executive Director of the Center for Justice and Accountability, to discuss CJA's work in identifying gaps in U.S. civil and criminal law and ensuring the effective prosecution of atrocity crimes. We hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me and the Cornell Policy Review podcast. I'm very excited to learn more about the Center for Justice and Accountability and what you do there and your work in the past. So to start the conversation, can you tell me more about the Center for Justice and Accountability? What is the mission and what is your role in the organization? Certainly, and thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm Dixon Osborne. I'm the executive director of the Center for Justice and Accountability. Based in San Francisco, our mission is to bring justice and accountability against individual perpetrators of the worst crimes known to humankind, including genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. And we do that both through litigation and political advocacy. So CJA works to identify gaps in the United States civil and criminal law system to ensure that international human rights criminals are held accountable and that their victims receive due justice. So what campaigns is the organization currently working on? Certainly, let me give you both a little history as well as the current opportunities that I see. I look at international criminal law and international human rights law as sort of this international global net of accountability. And there are gaps in this net of accountability, including gaps in the laws in the United States. Some of those gaps have been closed in recent years when the Senate passed and signed into law a bill on Child Soldiers Accountability Act, and there was a Genocide Accountability Act passed in 2007 and 2008. There are still gaps in the law. One of them is in the civil law, a statute that organizations have used for over 30 years called the Alien Tort Statute has been severely weakened at this point by recent decisions by the United States Supreme Court. And what it means is that the causes of action that we would like to be able to bring against war criminals includes things like crimes against humanity. And it's in doubt whether or not that remains available. So there will need to be an effort to try to include those sorts of causes of action back again under law in a way that is clear and supported in Congress. Additionally, there is a gap in criminal law and that there is no crimes against humanity criminal statute in place. And this is the law that the United States used back in Nuremberg. So it's somewhat surprising that the United States itself has not given that tool to the Department of Justice. And there are an estimated 1,900 suspected war criminals in the United States, according to the Department of Homeland Security. So this type of tool would be very valuable for our government to have in order to assure accountability for these egregious crimes. So when it comes to raising the salience of these gaps that you've mentioned, what are some strategies, not just CGA, but strategies that you've employed in your own experience with campaigns to ensure the visibility of them on the national and international stage? 
Sure. No, on, on these issues, on crimes against humanity, I actually think that we can generate some bipartisan support. Back when we were debating nation comprehensive immigration reform, in fact, we were able to do an amendment to that law that would have allowed for civil accountability for crimes against humanity. And then, of course, the debate around comprehensive immigration reform crumbled. But at that time, there was bipartisan support. And I think one looking forward post-November elections this year that we could generate bipartisan support again. What's going to be necessary is a couple of things. One is finding the right leaders in both the House and the Senate who can champion it, and then to ensure that the leadership is bipartisan, and then to convince those leaders that this is a moment in time where action is needed. And action is needed because the Supreme Court's decisions in two cases, one was called Kiobel versus Royal Dutch Petroleum, the other one this year in Jessner versus Zara Bank, it has made it necessary for Congress to act in order for individuals to continue to bring suits against these perpetrators who are living in the United States. So there's, I think, a moment in time which is critical. There is, I think, bipartisan support on both the House and the Senate side that will be critical. And then it will be lining up some of the interlocutors that would be necessary to convince them to push this forward, given that both chambers of Congress are going to have a mountain of priorities that they would like to address. We have to find those interlocutors that would impress upon them that this is one of those issues that they should move forward. And that makes for a good segue into my next question of what happens once these gaps are identified. So in working with policymakers and civil society groups to ensure that proper action is taken to address the gaps, what is the process of onboarding actors? What exactly is the call to action? You kind of mentioned bipartisan support, but how is that built at a time where that isn't the most feasible endeavor? What you need to do is to try to make it as easy as possible for the policymakers. So typically you will have the draft language that you would like to see Congress pass. So you try to take the guesswork out of what the language is needed to address the gap in current law. And then you provide them with the background information. And typically, you know, you work very closely with the congressional staff to dive deep into understanding the law and politics undergirding the request for political political change or policy change. Uh, And so you provide the detailed analysis of why now, why this, how does this fit into the broader rubric? Now, are there any costs associated with this so that they have the full information that allows them to convey to their bosses why this is important? And then to the extent that you have what you'd call the grass tops, meaning people because of their background, their prestige, their knowledge that the members of Congress would look to them and say, okay, I can see that there is a community of actors out there that backs this. And with those stars aligned, you're able then to try to move that forward through the political process. So when broad bipartisan support is garnered for a particular legislative action that is related to addressing these accountability gaps, but that bill or amendment does not advance, what are the next steps for the CJA in an event like that? Are you saying if the bill does not advance, what are the next steps? Yeah. Well, if you don't at first succeed, you try and try again. So typically that's what you need to do. It may not succeed because there's some disagreement among the decision makers about the exact language. So since this is a bill, say it's about crimes against humanity, that would take the interest of individuals at the White House, the Pentagon, Homeland Security, the Justice Department, 
maybe there's a sticking point on a particular word or a particular phrase. So you then try to go back to address that before you resubmit and you try to get consensus on what that right fix is. You know, it may be that it simply did not go forward because there's just too much that Congress is trying to address. So it didn't creep up to the top of the priorities. So you come back again to try to make it a top priority. So I'm going in thinking that, in fact, there should be bipartisan consensus. I'm thinking that there is language that can achieve a gap that everybody wants to be able to close, but then aware of if there's sticking points, what you do is you just go back and try to address those sticking points to see if you can unstick that particular moment. So when the advocacy is actually successful and a bill or amendment passes, what are the next steps? So, for example, if an amendment is added to an existing bill that expands funding for the treatment and rehabilitation of torture survivors, would CJA as an organization be involved in the rollout or the implementation of the policy or like in the evaluation of whether or not that intervention is sufficient enough? That's a very good question. No, I think it is the case that the U.S. government has not done enough in terms of doing criminal prosecution against individuals who've committed these most egregious crimes. So I think it is incumbent upon groups like the Center for Justice and Accountability to be more active in ensuring that the Justice Department, who would be charged with criminal prosecutions, are aware of the opportunities they have to be able to prosecute under this law. So that is something that we would certainly try to do to make sure that there is accountability taking place for those individuals over whom the government has jurisdiction. So one of the actions that CJA as an organization mobilizes for is for the creation of historical records of truth. What systems do you envision would assist in allowing for fruitful avenues to accountability? So say, for example, I am someone who's the victim of someone who's still here or someone who's abroad. What institutions, what systems do you think would allow for proper civil claims to come to the government's attention? You raised a couple of very important and related points. The first is that for the victims and survivors of atrocity crimes, one of the most important things that they're looking for is truth. To give you an example, we brought a case against a former minister of defense, an interim prime minister of Somalia, who was responsible for war crimes and crimes against humanity, just the most horrific devastation of the local communities. And doing the investigation, we were able to obtain documents and eyewitness interviews to put together a case to show that he was, in fact, liable for these egregious crimes. And the fact that in the United States courts, and this is a case that went up to the United States Supreme Court three times, the fact that we were able to build out a record of truth and a record of history actually had some of the greatest value to the citizens of Somaliland, which is a region in the northern part of Somalia, that in itself had the value. And the president of Somaliland, we presented him with a copy of the Supreme Court's decision. He presented an acknowledgement to the Center for Justice and Accountability and what we had done with the local community there. That itself was so symbolically powerful that the citizens' claims were heard, their cries of injustice were heard, and that those were filtered through a court that accorded due process and applied legal standards and found this incredibly powerful individual who was living in the United States accountable for the crimes of his past. So we've discussed the problem that 
CJA is working towards addressing as it relates to injustices and ensuring accountability. But with all that being shared as a closing thought to wrap up, what exactly would you describe the moral vision as that CJA is working toward? Our vision is a world where justice thrives. We have a very positive vision that the world is a place where the rule of law should work for all people, and especially those most marginalized in our societies. They should be able to have their claims heard through a court of law and adjudicated fairly. We recognize that this has been a process of the last 70 years. We're pushing the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights after World War II. And the efforts after World War II led to a number of treaties, the Geneva Conventions, the Convention Against Torture. Nations around the world domesticated a lot of these treaty commitments, but not all. And those who have, it has been patchwork in terms of actually implementing them in a way that has been very fulsome. So our vision is if we were to have the same conversation 70 years from now, I would want us to be in a place looking back and saying, and look how much more progress we've made toward this ideal of a world where justice thrives. Great. Thank you so much for sharing your insight. It's truly appreciated. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review podcast. If you are interested in receiving notifications for future podcasts and articles, please subscribe to our mailing list on the CPR website. You can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. 